You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Well, hello and welcome to Literary Treks, your local books and comic show here on the TFM Network uh, for Star Trek. And I'm just one of the hosts, Matthew Rushing, and so excited to be back with none other than Casey Pettit. Casey, how are you doing, man? It feels like forever since we've been here to talk about Star Trek books. Yeah, I feel like I was in Hawaii last time I recorded, but... Uh... You know, we, oh, and I yeah. was. Yeah, just rubbing your travel privilege in my face. That's you know. fine. <laughs> but yeah, we had a great interview, <laughs> um, you know, last time. So if you haven't listened to it, we talked about the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko, and that was awesome. And yeah, it feels like it's been forever since we've talked. So I think we've got a really interesting discussion ahead of us today. And yeah. Just glad to be here once again. Yeah, I'm. I am excited about this one as well. I think it's going to be really interesting. Like you said, I think uh, the the book is going to be a lot of fun for us to be able to talk about as we dive into the Lost Era series, the books we haven't covered in that era. Some great stuff coming up, but uh, we'll be covering the first one, the Sunder, today. Uh, before we do dive in, though, of course. We want to thank everybody for listening. We really appreciate you uh, hitting up Literary Treks. Of course, you can find us all over social media uh, on X at Trek FM. We're on uh, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We're on Instagram at Trek FM. You can find the listeners only discussion group as well. You can join called the Babel Conference on Facebook as well as going to Trek.FM and seeing all of the shows we're doing. And if you like what we do here and you want to make sure that continues, the best way to support us is to go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. Become somebody who helps out this network. We have great associate producers here on this show, Casey Pettit, as well as Greg Rosier. We really appreciate their support, uh, making sure that all of the content, especially Literary Treks, does come to you each and every week. So, uh, Casey, now, one of the things, and I would say one of my favorite things uh, about doing literary tracks is when we get the the covers that have come out and i love the fact that uh we've got two brand new covers for books that are coming out here uh in 2024 uh it is always exciting when that happens and so first uh we've got two covers and actually the first one that got released was lost to eternity uh, which is the movie era book that is coming out there uh, from Greg Cox. And goodness, this cover is absolutely gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Yeah, they've, you know, it's got um, some hints of Ex Machina, you know, kind of with the rainbowy colors, but uh, 
you know, mm-hmm. these, the profiles of the character that we've got on the cover, this is what, you know, you know, we don't really get much for the story for the cover, but if you're judging a book by a cover, this is, this is gorgeous. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to describe in words, uh, you know, what we're looking at, but it's, it's always great to have a uh, movie era, anything. And, you know, we get this nice kind of shot of the the behind of our beloved is this the refit enterprise or is this the a don't actually know Uh, you know i think at this point this is the a uh and so i love that you know i'm a obviously huge fan of the a and uh it's it's my favorite ship um so i'm really excited to see that here and then um i also you know i think the other thing that jumps out to me is this this feels very reminiscent of what you got um, in Star Trek V uh, with uh, the um, uh, the galactic barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think th- there's also that colorization as well. So, man, I, I just this this is a great cover. Um, and the fact that you have Savick, Spock, and Kirk there as well is is phenomenal. So, I mean, this is this is definitely something that has me very excited. Um, I love the look. I think that it's it's phenomenal. And so, um, yeah, I think this one, like you said, you know, it it doesn't tell you a lot about the 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 story. But it does, I, I think, it, it hints at the characters that are going to be important uh, in this story and as well as just kind of the gorgeousness of of, of the space look to it. Like, I, I just – that's the thing that I'm, I'm really gravitating towards is just how beautifully space is depicted in this This I love it. Uh, so I, I can't wait to read this book. Of course, I love this time period. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that, um, you know, we're, we're getting it. And so hopefully, um, it'll be a fantastic book. You know, Greg, Greg Cox, you know, always delivers for us. And so really excited, uh, to, to, to be able to read this. And then the, the second cover that we have here, Casey, is I would say, um, I'm, I'm having a hard time putting into words how, how, like, cool this is because it's it's a book it's the next generation right um but it is um also spanning that time period right before deep space nine starts so it's it's right between the two and you've got the enterprise there at tarok nor uh you've got garrick on the cover and this is a great moody uh, like this is kind of what i would expect from this type of cover uh, so I'm so excited that um, uh, the the artistic choice that they made for this cover. I'm I honestly I, I feel bad for everybody listening to this, and I'm so sorry everyone that I'm stumbling <laughs> over my words like an idiot. But really, I, I I I don't even know what to say. Like I I I see this cover, and it just has me so excited. Yeah, I I'm I'm right there with you. There's. You know, Tarak Noor, Deep Space Nine, whatever is a beautiful station, and then seeing the Enterprise D docked at it whenever it's been on the show or you know as is artistically um, displayed to here on this cover is just I, I'm kind of right there with you, being a little bit speechless at this because it, it's gorgeous and it's the, the 
the way it's depicted, it's kind of shadowy. It's very, you know, artistic, but you've got Picard and Garrick and, um, and like you said, it's set before, uh, the start of Deep Space Nine. And so really interesting, somewhat unexplored time period for us. And I mean, anytime you got Garrick involved, I'm, I'm in, you know, for Deep Space Nine, you know, that's great. I, I'm curious to see how much next generation there is or how much crossover there is, or is this really a Garrick story? Um, cause you know, sometimes they'll put, put a label on it to sell. They know Star Trek the next generation is going to sell maybe more than deep space nine would, uh, at least for some people putting Patrick Stewart on the covers is going to help. But I mean, I, I don't know, looking at this cover, I it's, it's one of those I want to pick up right, right now and, and read and see what the story's about. Cause, um, it's, yeah, it looks good. I don't know what else to say either. Yeah, I mean, the cool part about this one is is that we know from um, the description that you are going to have great characters in there like Picard. You're going to have uh, characters like Garrick, but we also know that another major character that's going to be playing into this is going to be um, Ro Laren. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, which, you know, we talked about last time, the idea of how exciting it is to, to have her here when she was supposed to be the character on Deep Space Nine and Michelle Forbes decided not to do the show. Uh, and so they created Kira. So to, to have her here, I think it's just going to be a huge benefit to the book um, and, you know, what we're uh, trying to do in this story. So, no, I, I could not be more excited. And, you know, I think that this is going to be one of those things where, you know, you just kind of imagine this, the story ending right as you know Picard and Cisco meet there um and in Deep Space Nine on the first episode in Emissary so I I'm very excited uh, about this as an opportunity and I, and I think you know one of the beauties here is is that you know they have the ability to go back in and fill these stories um and these areas where there are questions about you know what things were like you know and so i i can't wait i think it's gonna be um i think it's gonna be fantastic so um well uh casey uh we are going to be covering the comics that are coming out everyone uh we just want you to let you know we'll uh, be hitting those up in the new year um and uh as we wrap up this year though with talking about the sundered Well, I mean, I think it's just time to split and get to the feature. Let's do it. Well, Casey, um, this is a book that on the cover you've got um, Sulu and you've got Chekhov. And it doesn't really give you a lot to kind of go on of what the story is going to be. And I didn't didn't actually have this out in the outline. But I really – it's something I was just thinking about. Uh, as a, as a question for you, you know, when you, cause we were just talking about covers and so this is what, um, was the inspiration for it. But when you see the, the book having Chekhov on Sulu at the forefront, you know, I would expect that's the story to feature them very heavily and maybe get into their characters pretty deeply. Right. Do you feel like that really happened in this book for both of them? Probably not for both of them. I mean, they're obviously both featured fairly, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say heavily, but they are both um, 
main characters in the book, you know, when I, I remember when this first came out, I mean, this was the first time I've actually ever read this, but I remember when it came out thinking, oh, cool, you know, we've got a Captain Sulu story, which effectively we do. Um, Chekhov really is more of an ancillary character in this one. Um, it was kind of an interesting idea to place Chekhov on the uh, Excelsior, which in some ways kind of makes sense. I guess, you know, we don't really know, at least, you know, from what I've read a lot about Chekhov after the movies, you know, kind of where he went, what he did. Uh, it would make sense that his friend Sulu would, you know, kind of recruit him, you know, when the Enterprise was decommissioned. Um, and I feel like we got some... I don't know, growth or whatever from Chekhov, but not as much as I'd like to see. In fact, actually, we even focus on one of Chekhov's subordinates more than Chekhov himself. And so, which I thought was an interesting choice, but, you know, having Chekhov on the cover was maybe a little bit odd. And I know that Pocketbooks has done that in the past, like especially like way in the past, they would put whoever the, whoever would sell the books on there. We've even seen some of those on some of the books that we've covered were Spock's like right front and center on the cover. And it's really not about Spock at all. Or he shows up once. Um, and so it was a little bit more than that with Chekhov here, but um, you know, it, it, there was definitely a lot of other more main characters maybe than even Sulu in some ways, like Tuvok maybe was more of a main character in some ways than Sulu. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is something that I just found really interesting. And again, it all because we were having the discussion about covers and it really does feel like a place where look i i i love you know having these books in this time period and i love getting to explore these characters and, and this is one of the things like i don't know what happened to sulu and i don't know uh what happened to check off during this time period you know, after generations, we don't really have an idea of what happened to these characters. And so I think the opportunity here then is to fill us in on that. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, one of the things that I, I get, I hate to start off in, maybe in the negative for the book, but I think maybe one of the things that I'm slightly disappointed in, um, in the story, uh, is that we don't actually get a lot of, I feel like, growth especially for Chekhov and not as much as I would have expected from Sulu um, I mean we we do get to spend time with Sulu which is great and I think we get to to to, to, to learn um, you know uh, about about him as well you know just kind of as, some of the struggles he has with command decisions that he has to make and I, I think it's something that will, uh, you know, we we will be talking about that uh, a little bit here as we, you know, um, move further on into the the episode and, and the story with the book and his struggles and everything. But um, it just, I think one of the things I just it felt like it just wasn't as much as I thought it would be. And, um, and in some ways that kind of is a little bit frustrating for me because um, – yeah, I really, I, I think one, uh, I came into this hoping because of the cover that we were really going to be kind of filling in uh, details about both of these characters' lives in in ways that you know we haven't had before. Um, 
And we just don't get that as, as much as I would have hoped. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, like I said, it was interesting having Chekhov be Sulu's executive officer. And, and I would agree. I mean, they've, they've, they were underutilized for being on the cover and I've, it, it didn't bother me quite as much. I mean, I would, I would definitely like to know or, or have more focus on them, I suppose. Um, and, you know, we know that Tuvok, you know, from, from Voyager was on the Excelsior at this time. I mean, even having Sulu and Tuvok maybe on the cover would have been good rather than Chekhov. I mean, Chekhov can be in the story or even he can be on the cover, but, um, you know, the scenes that we got with Chekhov especially were just not fulfilling, I guess. You know, we didn't we didn't get much time with him on the show to begin with. Um and even really in the movies, Chekhov wasn't really fully utilized. Um and so this would have been a really great opportunity to explore Chekhov as an executive officer as a way of him finding command because he was in command for at least a little while while Sulu was off doing his sword fight or whatever. But, um, you know, there's, there were, I guess, missed opportunities with Chekhov for sure, especially to be so prominently featured on the cover. But, you know, it kind of gets back to the marketing thing of whose face is going to sell the most, you know, and if they're, they're looking at the lost era between, um, you know, the movies and Star Trek The Next Generation, then, you know, kind of seems that, uh, um, you know, Tuvok might not sell as many books as Chekhov would, I guess. Which is kind of an unfortunate how they have to make those decisions sometimes. Yeah. No, I, I think I think you're right. Um, and I think that's that's definitely, you know, a big part of, of why, you know, we, we get what we get. And so... Um, we are going to kind of get into some serious spoilers for the book there. There's this is one of those books where I think it's very difficult to, to kind of talk about without that. And so, you know, just FYI, everybody, you know, if you, ha- if you haven't read the book, uh, we're going to dive into that. But so, Casey, one of the things that I'm 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 very interested to see where you uh, and, and how you feel um, about um, is the way in which this book really utilizes some interesting aspects of Star Trek lore. Uh, one of the things that we get here is these these characters called the Nayal, and uh, they are the main kind of antagonists that we have here, along with the Tholians. And so first, I wanted to ask you about this, because this was, a, was an interesting choice I, I found. And the Nayal are actually uh, a collection of people who were on hollowed-out asteroids that were working on the Phoenix Project alongside of Dr. Cochran uh, when the kind of nuclear holocaust begins um, at the very – basically the end of, I would say, World War Three mm-hmm. in many ways, like uh, the tail end of it. And uh, there is a um, – cosmological accident that throws them across the galaxy and so they're they're humans uh and so then we have their journey and that leads them to kind of being what we think of at the beginning of the story as the villains but you know everything turns around so i i just wanted to ask you how you felt about this connection 
with everything, with them being human, with their connection with with Cochrane and the story there. Um, how did how did that sit with you? Because that's kind of a big, I would say, universe shattering, Star Trek shattering <laughs> like idea. Because you know, for us, we only knew that Doctor Cochrane was the one who had come up with warp drive and everything, and now to know that there was a whole group of people working on this, I, I, how does it work for you? Yeah, that was pretty interesting, yeah, because I feel like everything we've known about Warp, I mean, Zed from Cochrane is the inventor or the one who discovered whatever Warp technology, and yeah, to find that for, I mean, I mean, 20 or 30 years, like, or, you know, however long it was before, uh, you know, the actual first contact that they're working on this and and like you said yeah they've got they've got essentially colonies on these on these asteroids that help they're basically taking the dangerous testing away from earth and i i don't know i mean it kind of makes a little bit more sense that it's a group of people rather than just one guy that discovers it and builds a ship on his own i mean we get in Star Trek First Contact, Lily talking about how it took her forever. Like, she's, like, having to scrounge up titanium by herself, <laughs> you know, to build the Phoenix. Um, which might have been true as it got closer to the 2060s, you know, after the nuclear holocaust and everything on Earth. But, I don't know, I, I it, it didn't... I kind of liked it, because I always do kind of like when they connect certain things back to the lore that we've, you know come to know in star trek um incidentally i've i actually read um the star trek titan book the red king a couple of years ago probably so i was already introduced to the nail from that book um and so when i saw them in this one i kind of had I, it sounded familiar so i kind of had to look them up and realize that's where they came from so this was actually more of an origin story from me <laughs> for um characters that i already knew were you know you know had this connection to earth but um which was actually pretty interesting um the one thing that i guess kind of bugged me a little bit was that this the the kind of cosmological event or whatever it was that threw this particular asteroid out um what 200 light years away basically into uh Tholian space, you know, where the, the rift is, uh, the inner space rift is kind of occurring. Um, but they, they don't really, it, it was almost a little confusing at first. I mean, it was, it was clear that the colony disappeared and then they, you know, when we see their point of view, they're still alive, but just really far away. You know, was that like a warp accident or was that something else that took them away? But, um, you know, it's, but for the most part, I mean, I, I actually really did like those flashback, you know, parts of the book that happen periodically. And we always get date stamps and everything. So it actually made it fairly easy to follow, especially if I paid attention to the dates. Um, the journey, basically, that these humans take to become the Nayal and how their language even kind of evolved or almost de-evolved in some ways since they're really kind of dropping vowels and stuff. But, um, and I guess kind of the, the other thing that was a little confusing and I kind of had to just, uh, suspend some disbelief here was that in, in 200 years or however long it's been, they've completely changed their appearance. <laughs> they've, 
you know, genetically modified themselves to have tails, like prehensile tails and thumbs on their feet and like all these, like the tree bark skin that it, it seems like, you know, maybe not enough time has passed for them to not even recognize humans when they eventually show up. But, you know, other than those couple things, you know, I, I actually kind of enjoyed their journey and, and the connections to earth and earth of the past and how they got to where they are. Cause it makes sense that they need to have some sort of knowledge of warp technology to conquer the planets that they did, and, you know, be able to use the technology to their advantage. Mm-hmm. I, I will, I'm a two minds. I think it's interesting. Um, I think I, the, the whole part where you're trying to kind of fit this in with the time period with Cochrane seemed a little bit forced to me. Uh, mainly because the idea that during any time during the Third World War, you've created these like asteroid places where the best and the brightest of people have gone and everything. It's like, I don't really think that that's possible when humanity can't even get along um, in their in a World War Three situation. That that part I think is where I found it to be a little bit. Um, not realistic, you know, <laughs> Star Trek, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, even for Star Trek, it seemed a little bit forced in that sense. And so that was something where, eh, I, I will say too, um, them having the human connection as well. Um, I think I get why we do it thematically for the character of Sulu and where we're trying to go for him. But honestly, that doesn't really work for me. Um, either, I, I, you know, and we'll talk in more detail as to why that doesn't work when we actually talk about Sulu's conundrum, but, you know, um, it, that also feels kind of forced, I think, uh, to me, um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, in 200 years, the way that they have genetically altered themselves to the point where, now they have, you know, two thumbs on their hands and they have a tail and all of these type of things. I just felt like, okay, we're really, we're really out there um, with all of this. And I don't know. Um, and I, I think the biggest thing was this. The Tholians are fascinating. And I feel like, sadly, the Tholians start to take a back seat in the book where they should be the prime storytelling you know uh focus because they're a really interesting race we don't know a ton about them and i would have been much more excited to actually have spent more time with them i honestly forgot in the red king that the the they all were there but that i haven't read that book since it came out uh and so um so yeah i mean I, to me that's where i kind of came down with that like it's like it's not uninteresting but it just felt like it was kind of taking away from the things that I actually was really caring about in this story. Um, and I think that's the thing that bothered me is that I, I every time that they were on, um, I found myself being like, can we just kind of get back to, <laughs> you know, the story that I do kind of care about, um, which is uh, the, the Tholian story. Yeah. You know, um, to me, that was 
that was the story that I kind of was really invested in. And I was kind of sad that, you know, they, 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 they kind of neglected if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. See where you're coming from on there. It, it's funny though. Cause I think my favorite parts were definitely the, the stuff with the nail and seeing them. And, and I almost wanted more because there were some leaps and bounds taken with them and, um, some, you know, like I said, some suspension of disbelief that we have to take that, that they could, yes, they're genetically engineering themselves, but then that that's just immediately affecting the evolution of their species to where, I mean, unless they're, they're doing some gene modifications on them as they're born. Um, I just, I don't see if you add a tail to somebody that their kid is not going to come out with a tail, you know? So, um, but yeah, I, I agree too with the Tholians. I mean, they're, they're definitely a threat that, um, you know, obviously we get a lot in the Vanguard novels, which ironically the asteroid in this one is called Vanguard. Um, but they are, they do, they do seem kind of like a, a side villain, I guess, somebody to come in and, um, I don't know, have a common foe, you know, with, you know, Star, Starfleet and the Nile having kind of this common foe. But even then, at this point, Sulu is, is there with an ambassador to try to kind of broker peace with the Tholians and, and, and come to some common ground. And at which I think would have been a really interesting way too to learn more about the Tholians if we'd had more time with the ambassador working with the Tholian ambassador to, find common ground to start understanding each other more. Um, you know, maybe the Tholians aren't such bad people after all. We don't really know. And and like you said, we we don't really get a lot of them in this book. We start to we start to learn more about like their caste system and everything and, and some of their um some of their like rituals, kind of like the the truth battle or whatever that one was called. Um <laughs> the, the the sword fight that um, Sulu has with their, uh, with their admiral, but, um, it, it, especially because the Tholians are so different in their, you know, their high pressure suits and their high pressure environment, it's super hot. And, you know, the Starfleet people trying to find ways to be able to even be in the same room with the Tholians to be able to talk with them. It's just not something that we've ever been even really able to explore much on the shows except for, you know, we get some mirror universe action in Star Trek Enterprise with one of the Tholians, but otherwise, you know, we get a brief glimpse of them in the original series, and that's about it. And so, you know, they're we we always get the the Klingons and the Romulans and the Borg and whoever, but you know, the Tholians are one of those ones that we just don't hear enough about. And so I think it was smart for them to use them here, but I I'd agree that mm-hmm. we could have used some more though. You know, I think um, talking about the Tholians, I think it's a great place to just kind of be able to to start to dive into you know them as the characters here uh, in the story, and you know really seeing that. Um, and I I think that they're um again they're the part of the story that I'm really interested in here. Um, I think that they're the part of the story that they 
like you mentioned, you know, we just don't get a ton of chances in in any any Star Trek, and and it makes sense, you know, because there's just, you know, they were a hard species to even uh, create in the first place for Enterprise, right? Like this is this is a a difficult mm-hmm. this is a difficult thing to make happen, and I um I wish that this book then had kind of taken more of that and and ran with it because you know you you can't do this as well in a show i don't think and unless you know you're on the budgets that we have now um for uh the the new series that we're doing i mean i think you could uh absolutely um make yeah. this happen uh at this point but you know it's more difficult but i i think the thing was is that there there seemed to be a lot of competing elements in the book and the place where you know i was most interested where we're, we're learning about the tholians their caste system um their way of life uh you know uh, just the fact that yes they are these xenophobic aliens to us they have a whole society that is, you know, I think fascinating to learn about. And to me, that's the place where I was really interested because in some ways, you know, I, I think because I forgot that the Nail were in the Red King um, and they're not a thing that we've ever really seen in the series, uh, the, I'm invested really in, in the Tholian story and I just wish we had got more of it. And that's, I mean, you know, what we always want from our tie-in fiction, and we've talked about it a lot on this show, is, you know, the the tie-in fiction does it best when they're expanding on stuff that we are already somewhat familiar with, or maybe we've gotten a taste of breadcrumb or, you know, just something. Um, you know, it's great when authors can come in and create their own species, their own characters and everything, but to really tie that into what matters to us. And I know that the nail are supposed to be kind of a I mean, the Romulans, you know, to the Vulcans, the Nail to the humans kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the Tholians are, they're, they're just, they're just so un- unutilized. They could be such a scary race. And, um, you know, if, if they're going to use them at all, you know, use them a lot instead of right. uh, just teasing us with more. Well, and I think, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, the one of the things they did with the Tholians that they were doing with the Tholians in this book that they kind of did, say, with the Zengethi, right, in the novels, they made this mm-hmm. an incredibly fascinating race. And that's the place where I felt like if the Nell hadn't been the race that the Tholians were having this battle with, and it was maybe something where... um it's kind of more generic alien of the week kind of thing. And you don't need to mm-hmm. focus so much of the story on them. Then we could really, I think, utilize that page count to really dive in with Tholian stuff and, and get even more detail in them and, and make them really fully rounded characters. Because I also liked the idea that, you know, you had some Tholians that more were more amenable to working with Starfleet and creating peace than others. And and I think all of that's in, incredibly interesting. And so I, I think that they just became competing storylines. And, you know, you like the Nail one more. I like the Tholian one more. 
but it almost felt like that both of them really needed just their own book um, so they could get their yeah. fully fledged story. Because that was the other thing I th- I felt like with the Nayal as well is that every time we were talking about them, um, it, it it felt like we have to do this very quickly. You know, whereas that whole story, I feel like, is you need a, you, and you kind of want a lot more detail, especially when it comes into them, you know, utilizing the genetic engineering to create who they're going to be as we know them later on in the book. So, yeah. And I mean, and I, I would agree. I think having, having this as two books would have, would have been good because we did try to fit too much in having the, the Nayal is kind of an offshoot of the human race, you know, was interesting, an interesting idea. But, um, you know, one thing that I was just thinking of, too, was with the Tholians, you know, we were kind of just talking about how we hardly ever saw them on the show. And I mean, I feel like we don't even really get much of them in our next generation or Deep Space Nine stories. I think I think they were one of the members of the Typhon Pact. Mm-hmm. But, yep. but otherwise, like, they're not really... I don't know, like, because they were so un- underutilized, I almost wonder if the authors here were kind of trying to say, like, here's why we don't really hear much from the Tholians anymore, because we've kind of come to an understanding with them because of these events that happened. And so they're, they're not like friends, but they're also not our, mm-hmm. they're like frenemies, completely adversaries, maybe kind of a cold war. Yeah. 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 And so I, but even there, I don't, I don't really necessarily feel like that that was even, um, solidified enough to really you know justify all the things that happened and i mean you know and ultimately when it comes down to it they both of these like this whole conflict itself was really i think the intention you know to have something for sulu to have to focus on to um for us to see him and how he is as a captain and and as a diplomat and you know, kind of, I guess, you know, where he falls in that spectrum of, you know, a Kirk or a Picard or a Cisco or whatever, like what kind of captain is Sulu? And, and I mean, that's really, cause we're kind of bouncing, he's kind of bouncing back and forth between these stories. And, um, you know, although the focus gets lost sometimes, I think that's, I think that was the intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I could not agree with you more. We talked a, a little bit, there at the beginning about the storylines for Sulu and the storylines for uh, Chekhov. But Sulu's big storyline here becomes Sulu apparently being a character who likes to take on responsibility for everything and finds himself feeling responsible for the Nail and their war with the Tholians because their distant relationship to humanity. And I really wanted to ask you about that idea because it's the core one of the core storylines for our cover character in Sulu. Yeah, this is one thing um, that probably didn't work for me as well. Like it, it kind of it. It felt like it kind of came out of left field when he was really getting kind of down on himself and taking responsibility and you know willing to die as a as a representative of humanity, um, you know, on behalf of the Nail. And it, I wouldn't necessarily say it's out of character, but I, I don't even say I'd say it's in character for him. I mean, if we're trying to create a character trait for Sulu, that's fine. But I, I don't think that for me, I don't, I don't really feel like I've ever seen anything that would make me believe that 
Sulu would feel this way. I mean, you know, Kirk, <laughs> Kirk takes responsibility in certain ways by kind of just forcing people to do what he wants. You know, Picard, though, you know, never would, well, I was going to say never would take responsibility for humanity, but that was kind of the whole thing with Q, I guess. <laughs> but, but, you know, we've not seen something like that from Sulu, I don't think. Um, so it, it was just kind of weird. I mean, I, I think it was a, a way to, I mean, humanize, I guess, Sulu somewhat, but I don't know. I feel like any other character, I mean, even Chekhov maybe would have been a better character to feel that responsibility more than Sulu. Yeah, I I think I absolutely really struggled like with this idea um, that, that Sulu would, would feel himself responsible for the NA all because they have a, you know, connection with humanity and it felt like a place where we're 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 discussing the ideas of like where are people responsible for past actions right and their connection to those people and those past actions and i think the problem is is that to me it's not I, I I wouldn't say it's really well done because I'm sitting there thinking to myself, why in the world does he feel responsible for these people? It has nothing to do with what happened to them or what they're doing now. Like he legit has no connection to them. Yes, they might, you know, have human ancestry, but that was hundreds of years before Sulu was born. And so that was a thing that really kind of like, I was just like, it felt, there's a few things in this book that just felt very forced. And this was one of the things that felt very forced, um, where we've got this idea. And, you know, at the end of the book, Sulu kind of learns to not take responsibility for things he didn't do, you know, um, with, uh, you know, how he's going to tell the story to Starfleet about what happened and what he's going to take responsibility for and what he's not going to take responsibility for. And so, yeah, I just, uh, I think it, I just, it just doesn't work for me. Um, and it's frustrating because it's the big storyline for the character here. And, um, you know, I, I want to be invested in what's happening with Sulu in the story, but I'm just not invested with his struggle because I'm like, dude, why are you struggling with this? I, I, I just don't personally get it. And maybe other people love it and get it and all that. But to me, I just, I, I wasn't getting it. Yeah. And I feel like too, I mean, I, I almost feel like a better story for Sulu would be, I mean, almost if the ambassador had died and he had to step in as ambassador or, you know, in, in some diplomatic capacity, um, I always find it funny when in the books, like Sulu always loves talking about how he was there at Kitimer and he helped save Kirk and everything. When in reality, he showed up at the very end and, and pointed a phaser at somebody. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I mean, uh, the, you know, like <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. I mean, what happens? He, yeah. you know, they get there to help destroy the, the bird of prey. Um, but even, but that's after, you know, Uhura has already figured out how to find it. And so, yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah. 
they take some pot shots, yeah. but yeah, that's yeah. about it. Good but, job, bud. Good job. You know, and, and yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but even more, I mean, especially the way this book started, what I was, I guess where I was hoping it was going to go with Sulu too was, um, <laughs> there was kind of this mission impossible type of, of mission that, that Sulu was given, like, you know, hey, uh, go spy on the Tholian, see what's going on. Um, you know, send some probes out and, and everything. But if you get caught, we're going to disavow all knowledge of you. And I think this could have been a really interesting spy story. And, and heck, I wouldn't even minded so much if Section 31 had shown up. You know, that would have almost made more sense than, um, than him kind of being this kind of highly emotional, uh, I'm taking everybody's problems onto my shoulders and, and going to bear that for everybody. Like that's not, not Sulu. He's, he's more of a warrior or whatever, which we saw in this book, which was, which was great. But, um, yeah, just this whole, um, yeah, I don't know. Like the fact that the Admiral had to talk him down was, was kind of like the Admiral, uh, Admiral Nagura had to talk him down from taking so much responsibility. was kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a part of the book here for sure. Um, it's not a huge part, but I did think it was interesting because, you know, Star Trek is so much about this idea of communication and really having this failure to communicate between the Naal and the Tholians and, and, and really, you know, what they say about assuming, uh, and they both <laughs> just assume because they can't communicate with one another. And it doesn't seem like they try all that hard that they question the sentience of the other race and it allows them to basically, you know, feel okay, or most of the people to feel okay about going to war um, with the other and trying to eradicate them because they're just vermin. And, of course, you know, the theme of, of communication becoming very important then and the fact that it's not until the ability to communicate that they can possibly avoid war to kind of understand the things that are happening. And so I I liked that that was in the book. And again, I think in some ways, I almost, you know, I almost would have liked it if this failure to communicate had been between the Federation and Atholians, where by getting to understand the Tholians, their culture, um, their caste system and all those things and, and then learning how to talk to them in the same way you would like uh, – like w I think in Enterprise when, when you have Archer having to deal with the Andorians or the Tellarites, right? And he has to kind of take a, a different mm. perspective and a mindset that he can talk to them differently than he might a Vulcan or a human even, right? And And so – uh, I think that might have been something I would have been much more interested in seeing because, you know, I think it would have played out even even better. And and it, again, I, I think it's a it's a great theme. It's very Star Trek. It just kind of lacks in its ability to really truly connect. I think with the reader because, mm. you know, it it's it's there, but you you don't get the focus that you would hope for a theme like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it really would have been interesting if even like the first half of the book focused on the Federation and the Tholians trying to come to terms, learning to communicate, almost like finding a common ground. 
Well, in the meantime, in the background, there's these like attacks happening and finding that the nail who are arguably genocidal against the, you know, they're, they're attacking any Tholians they can possibly find. Um, and, and granted they've, they've had a bad go of things. I mean, I think they, um, you know, the, the Nausicans were the first ones that they really ever, uh, encountered, which was another aggressive species, but almost have, um, the Tholians and the Federation kind of on the same side, kind of battling against the Nile before they discover this kind of connection to humanity. And now we've, we can have this play where as, as the Federation's trying to understand the Nile more and, and learn about this connection, the Tholians maybe are, again seeing things from a different side and saying yeah but they're attacking us they're killing our innocence and whatever and like are you going to stand with us are you going to stand with them which again is kind of another theme there's this us or them mentality with the um well on both sides the nail and the and the tholians and um yeah there there would have been there's some interesting ways i think this could have gone for sure in that way and and really focused on um you know especially because you got an ambassador there focusing on their ability to communicate or to to work on communication Mm -hmm. with alien species yeah what did you think of you know one of the things that we do of course get in the book uh is the different connections we have uh to different parts of star trek whether it's tos with you know the defiant being lost in the interface section of space the Ares four from one small step you know getting more on Tuvok and the reason he does leave Starfleet for a while to pursue Kolinar. Um, and there's, there's others in, in there as well. Um, how did, did you feel like all of those worked for you? Um, and that, you know, were, were well done at that point. I, uh, not totally, <laughs> um, you know, with the defiant, I mean, there's, there's lots of, Good callbacks. I mean, they, they call out the Defiant a couple times, you know, because they're obviously familiar with the, the interface, um, in Tholian territory and, and everything. But, it, you know, it was a little much when they were going through that space to get to the Nail homeworld, uh, and they kind of have to pass it and they're like, oh, we'll leave that for someone else, which we know that someone else is going to be, um, you know, the mirror enterprise, like Star Trek enterprise crew, but, um, you know, and the Ares four, you know, was one, I think that one was okay. Cause there was, it was a little bit more, um, kind of mentioned and, um, kind of tied into, you know, Cochrane's work or the project Phoenix, I guess, which was good. Um, <laughs> Tuvok, I know we're in a different point in his life. Uh, I, I was not a Tuvok fan in this book. If this was my first introduction to Tuvok, I'd probably never really want to see him again because he was kind of annoying. And, um, you know, obviously he's, he's leaving. This is his kind of first go in Starfleet, which we know from Voyager. And then he, he takes a break to pursue Kulinar. He comes back, he teaches for a while, and then he joins up in Starfleet again. Um, and I just didn't care for this Tuvok. He's insubordinate. He's, um, I don't know. He was just annoying every time he was there and kind of talking. I kind of just felt like he was getting in the way and, you know, we got to have him. Well, we don't have to, but it makes sense to have him there since we know he served under Sulu on the Excelsior. But I, I almost wish we'd have done something a little bit differently for him. But I mean, this kind of does bring to light why he wanted to leave Starfleet. I mean, he didn't feel like he fit in and, and I agree. I don't think he fit in really well here. Um, so 
I mean, maybe in that way it did actually work for me, but, um, I don't know. I think, you know, for the most part, I, I always do like it when there's like little connections and, and Easter eggs. And I mean, I, I would say nobody does it really better than Christopher L. Bennett, but you know, the authors here, um, you know, obviously playing in the time period they're in and with the subject matter they're in, um, they definitely grabbed a lot of, um, decent ones, decent Easter eggs to throw in there. And like I said, I just, I think some of them were maybe used too much rather than just kind of having some mentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the Aries four one worked actually. Um, uh, that one absolutely made sense with what you did with the nail and where they came from. Um, so I, I thought that was fine. Um, I, I think like you said, the defiant one was just absolutely unnecessary because it's better just that we're here in this section of space. We know that Defiant was at that place in space and then it's going to get lost and, and go to the mirror universe. So I, I like that much better. Um, I think, you know, like what, what you said with Tuvok, he, he was a frustrating character in that sense. It, it was not as enjoyable um, to, to read him. And I, I'm obviously that's part of the storyline for him, right? Where we're seeing him mm-hmm. in his development. Um, he's very different um and and so uh and i i think with you i i feel like it almost it just seemed as though it might have just been one of those places where you know then we have a car here as well and um you know other characters and there was so much storyline happening here and then we had places where we were legitimately just like quoting sections of other stories and i was like okay <laughs> shows. i i, I yeah. really feel as though this book needed a, a total edit and it needed the editor to come in and be like okay we need to focus on this 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 and this and you need to like streamline or cut out these parts um and so i think that's the thing where some of the connections work for me and some of them didn't and part of it just felt like that the the book feels too choppy because you're jumping between all these time periods trying to tell all these stories and i I found i personally just found myself kind of losing interest in places where it's like i'm not enjoying this part of the story as much but i just want to get back to the other part of the story and that's the other thing when you're doing uh, a, a book like this where you have cut it up into sections um you need each section to hold the reader's interest and i didn't find every section or every storyline really holding my interest, unfortunately. And that's, I think the place where the, the, the connections part where, yeah, some of them work and then some of them just, you know, I don't, I don't care. Or I just like that is not necessary. So that, that's kind of where I ended up coming down with that. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I, I mostly didn't mind some of some of the choppiness just because I knew that, you know, given how many different sections there were in this book and in the way that they kind of took this took us through the story or the stories, um, you know, that that mostly worked for me. What was hard was when there were there were several points where we would end a chapter on a quite a cliffhanger and then it'd be like quite a few more chapters before we got back to that story because, you know, we're on the, you know, the Excelsior and then we go and we were with the Nail in the past for a while. And then we're with the Tholians and now we're, we're finally back to the Excelsior and it kind of picks up where it left off. And I completely had forgotten by that point, you know, whatever was happening before that and kind of had to flip back and find out, wait, where did we, where did we last end? And so, 
you know, if, if you're going to end on cliffhangers like that, don't, don't leave so much space because, um, especially for this one, I, it took me, I took my time reading this one. And so it, it could be like a day or two later before I'm, you know, picking it back up again and getting into the next, you know, coming back to a storyline that we were left on a cliffhanger before. So, um, you know, and, and then, you know, they weren't even loosely connected at that point. We were like getting pretty disparate stories, you know, like just very different from each other kind of coming together towards the end, which can be good in some books and in others. Um, sometimes you're just kind of wondering what you're reading because, you know, like, am I reading three books or one book? Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you. So I'm really interested to see where you come down on your ratings for the Sunder then. Well, after this discussion, I've, I've, I've actually lowered my rating a little bit. I, I, you know, honestly, when I finished this book, I, and I still, I, I really enjoyed this one. Um, you know, when I finished it earlier today, I gave, I gave it a five on Goodreads, but like just now I, I reduced it to a four. Um, it's, it's a really interesting read. There are, are arguably some, quite a few problems with this book. Um, but um it's you know an interesting time period that we're in uh some interesting concepts you know however they were handled you know or you know maybe we didn't get enough of some stories or we got too much of others or you know the suspension of just disbelief was just too much but you know overall i enjoyed it and um i give it a pretty pretty solid uh four interspatial rifts and where'd you come in on this one? Yeah, uh, for me, I am much lower on this book. Um, this comes out to be, I, on Goodreads, it would be a three, but in all actuality, I would give it a 2.5 out of five, honestly. I just, there's a whole portion of this story I just was not that invested in, and partially I think it's because that storyline needed its own book. And um, it just felt like, the book was trying to do too many things with too many characters and there wasn't enough focus. And so, yeah, I was, I was frustrated, uh, in that. And it just, it didn't work as well for me as I wanted it to. Um, and it's frustrating too, for me, because this is a time period, which I am incredibly interested in, you know, after Star Trek generations and, and the next generation, I think is a time period that is just rife with good storytelling opportunities. And so, I do hope that as we move forward in the Lost Era series that things will continue to get even more interesting. But, um, yeah, it, you know, can't win them all. You know, I wish we had, I know, I know we got a lot of Lost Era books, but, uh, I wish we had more like that. We've had some that just, even with, um, the new Next Generation book, Pliable Truths, it's, it's not so Lost Era, um, Next Generation wise, but it kind of is in the, the, uh, Deep Space Nine universe. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I think, uh, I know a bunch of these Lost Era ones were covered, uh, in years past on, uh, literary treks, and I haven't read them all, so I might have to go back and revisit those and, and find those episodes and listen to them again. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Casey. I mean, again, honestly, I always thought that this should have been the era that they should have put a show in. Um, I don't know yeah. why they didn't. You know, forget trying to do discovery in strange new worlds, put a show here, you know, and you got plenty of reasons to because you've got so much you can do. And so I, I just would have loved that. But 
Casey, I'm excited uh, for coming back there in the new year. We've got some exciting things for everybody coming up as well, so you'll want to be on the lookout for that. But uh, if people wanted to catch up with you here and see what else uh, is happening with you these days, where would they find you? Well, you can always find me on Goodreads, Letterboxd, uh, Instagram, and X at Knitting Trekkie. And um, again, I'm always poking around on Facebook and the Babel Conference. Uh, love to, uh, I love to lurk around, see people's comments, and uh, yeah, give us a shout out. And <laughs> love to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Uh, well, you can find me all over the place on social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Here on the network, of course, you can find me in the 602 Club, talking about all of the franchises we love, and then, of course, doing the Orb, Warp 5, the Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I've got a completed show I did with Drea Kaufman, talking about every single chapter of Harry Potter, called Owl Post. And you'll find me doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, as we're talking about Star Wars each and every week. But, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.